0: Ortino. Ortino, rolling puck down low shove, scores it's again Canada
1: wins gold in overtime welcome to changing on the fly a podcast about hockey politics and social change I'm your host Aaron Lakoff like blades on the ice changing on the fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. Hey folks, welcome to this third episode of Changing on the Fly. Damn, I was so sick when I released the uh, second episode, but happy to say that I am well over that cold now. Just before we get into things, I want to remind you that you can now subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. There's so many options, so just search for us and we are out there. I also want to encourage you to support this podcast if you like it. Changing on the Fly is produced on a labor of love, passion, caffeine, and hockey sweat. I actually don't think there's anyone else out there who's doing a podcast specifically looking at the intersections between hockey and social justice right now. And if you think this project could kickstart some much-needed discussions in the world of hockey, why not give us even $1 a month to support that? Hit us up on Patreon right now at patreon.com changingonthefly and donate as little or as much as you want. There's some great perks for everyone who supports us, so support early and support often. And finally, Changing on the Fly is a proud member of the Upford Network. Check them out to find your new favorite podcast at upfordnetwork.com. Now, on with the show. All right, well, if you're a hockey fan, and I imagine many of you here are, you probably saw the news at the beginning of the season that the Philadelphia Flyers have a new mascot. He's wild, he's orange, he's extremely weird, and his name is Gritty. Pretty much the minute after Gritty was unveiled, he became an international media sensation. Let's have a listen to how some TV personalities are fawning over him. The most fun story of the week, this.
0: Oh, the Philadelphia Flyers have a new mascot. Fans are saying, what the? That's seven-foot-tall Gritty. Gritty unveiled today in front of a group of kids probably scarred for
1: life. Yeah. Yeah, those kids should be scarred for life. Gritty is fucking horrific. Gritty looks like the end result of the orange McDonald's fry guy hooking up with Grimace. And we've been over this a million times before on this show. If you're a McDonald's mascot, you do not have sex with another McDonald's mascot. (laughs) Your genetics are too similar, and their kids always turn out weird. Very, very weird. Here it is. Meat. Gritty. That's the new mascot for the Philadelphia Flyers. You may want to avert your eyes. This orange creature, uh, wild eyes, even wilder fur gritty like the flyers attitude hungry for hockey and Cigna, this guy i'm assuming it's a guy <laughs> yes, yes it's kind of hard is, to tell it is, it is causing quite the stir on and off the ice the memes are incredible <laughs> it is no, is this camera gritty, who had quite an introduction the other night seven feet tall yes googly eyes they say a squeaky belly button haven't been able to see that yet and he can blow smoke out of his ears you gotta see the squeaky belly button So Gritty, this big scary orange creature, has come to us at a time when there's another big scary orange creature in the White House. But just like the great industrial workers of the world would say that the workers have nothing in common with the bosses, Gritty has nothing in common with Donald Trump. Except, of course, for the fact that they're both orange. Gritty has become a sort of mascot and internet meme sensation for the left, and specifically for anti-fascist movements. Maybe you've seen some of those memes. Or if you haven't, press pause right now and take a second to look up the account Fellow Worker Gritty on Twitter just to give you an idea. We'll also post some of them on our website at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com. Really, really amazing stuff. Gritty has gotten so wildly popular in such a short amount of time and the Philadelphia City Council even recently passed a motion officially welcoming Gritty and acknowledging that he's a symbol of anti-fascist resistance. Of course, that didn't pass without some debate, at least.
0: Alright. Moving probably second all those in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed, aye's have it. That res Uh-uh. Councilman, what
1: clarify. Alright. He ugly. The Wall Street Journal was so incensed by Gritty's anti-fascist turn that they ran an op-ed about him, decrying that leftist protesters quote, keep their Marxist hands off Gritty. But how did this happen? How did the mascot for the Philadelphia Flyers end up becoming a mascot for the anti-fascist movement in the USA, or the Antifa movement as it's commonly known? And better yet, what is Antifa? And how might this movement relate to hockey, or to sports more broadly? To help us understand all this, I wanted to go directly to the source of someone who I consider to be an expert on anti-fascist movements around the world. My guest on the program today, Mark Bray, is the author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. He's been featured on NPR, Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera. He's really the go-to person to talk about Antifa, and he's coming up in just a little bit. I spoke to Mark about gritty, hockey, anti-fascist movements today, And of course, some of the recent tragic events coming out of Pennsylvania. Apologies for the sound quality on this. It's a bit choppy at moments, but I really think it's a fascinating listen. Let's get into it. Mark Bray, welcome to Changing on the Fly.
0: Thanks for having me. How's it going?
1: It's going good. Yeah, I think this is a great subject of conversation to start talking about because in a way, it's a little bit absurd, but in a way, it's also very, very timely if we're looking at Gritty and the way he's, in a sense, been reclaimed by the radical left and by anti-fascists. So first, maybe for people who, who aren't necessarily familiar with what we're talking about, um, let's talk a little bit about like this whole Gritty Antifa meme phenomenon. What's been your reaction to it, just seeing it go down?
0: Right. So Gritty's a new mascot for the Philadelphia Flyers. And as far as I could tell, the real start of the left and anti-fascists claiming Gritty as one of their own was when Donald Trump came to Philadelphia and there was a demonstration against him. And some of the local anti-fascists made a banner with an image of Gritty holding an anti-fascist flag. And it said something to the effect of Gritty say GTFO of Philadelphia, Trump or something like that. Right. And then, you know, people loved that kind of notion. And, and if you look at, at, gritty, he's this outlandish over the top, uh, you know, bizarre looking creature. Um, Huge and in that sense,
1: eyes, he's all orange. right. And so,
0: <laughs> he, yeah, I mean, so in that way he can, he can sort of be taken and turned in, in a variety of directions. Obviously, the left and anti fascist kind of jumped on it initially, in part because Philadelphia has a pretty vibrant uh, anti-fascist movement. Um, unfortunately, the Proud Boys are going to be uh, demonstrating in Philadelphia again. I think November 17th, there's going to be a counter protest. So he was claimed and then subsequently became uh, uh, a figure that was central to a lot of left memes where Everyone invested Gritty with their most ultra-left, anti-racist, uh, anti-patriarchal, anti-fascist sentiments. And so, uh, you know, there was one where uh, Gritty is embracing the Philly fanatic, the the mascot for the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team. And it had some sort of message about how, you know, male intimacy is key to overcoming patriarchy <laughs> and, and just basically sort of projecting everything on him. And another important one to note is One where Gritty is essentially um, operating a guillotine and decapitating Pepe the Frog, who was dressed (laughs) up as a Nazi. So I think it's essential to understand Gritty as the anti-Pepe in these kinds of uh, meme wars between fascists and anti-fascists.
1: Yeah, it's true. I hadn't actually really thought of that, that like... You know, the alt-right neo-Nazi movement right now has their own kind of mascot with Pepe the Frog. So it was really timely for us to, in a sense, have an absurd mascot that I think, again, represents something serious, but that people can laugh at, too.
0: Right. And so much of the rise of the alt-right has had to do with, at least as, as the alt-right understands it, getting a rise out of what they would consider to be snowflakes who take themselves ultra-seriously and, quote-unquote, care about things, whereas the alt-right brought in a lot of primarily disaffected uh, young white men based on the notion that that they could uh, essentially care about nothing and post pictures of Nazi things as a joke. And so Pepe the Frog became kind of the figurehead for this alt-right politics. And so I think that there should always be multiple forms of resistance. And if there are anti fascists or anti racists who think Gritty's dumb, that's fine. But it's one way to create a kind of uh, meme culture that shows how actually, in fact, uh, left groups uh, can have a sense of kind of cultural struggle, can have a sense of like, having fun with resistance, and it, it creates a different kind of uh, tenor for um, creating uh, anti-fascist propaganda.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, well, I want to back up a little bit and maybe you know go back to the basics for people who might not be so familiar with that term, antifa, or what is the anti-fascist movement as we're seeing it manifest today. So... Yeah, let, let's, let's back up and, you know, tell us, give us a brief overview of what is Antifa and maybe a little bit of its, its history and its principles. So
0: when people think of anti-fascism, uh, a lot of people think, of course, about World War II uh, and the decades leading up to it, resistance in Europe against Mussolini and Hitler, and that story, at least in its basic sense, is, is well known. Uh, the Allies won World War II. From a lot of people's perspectives, that's the end of the story. But people who thought Hitler was right did not suddenly disappear. And so after World War II, there was uh, a continuation of fascist politics in Britain, of course. Uh, in the United States, for example, uh, with the KKK and white supremacist movements, there was no uh, going away. And in fact, the civil rights movement showed just how virulent that continued to be. So there was there's a sort of anti-fascist tradition among uh, the Black Liberation Movement in the United States. But my work focuses on the militant anti-fascist tradition that grew out of Europe when Nazis and fascists started organizing again in Europe, especially moving into the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And governments that tried to make it illegal to form new Nazi or fascist parties uh, weren't really getting the job done, in part because a lot of these groups simply changed their logos and changed their names rather than calling themselves Nazis identitarians or what have you instead of using swastikas they'd use uh, celtic crosses or other symbols and so there was a need among leftists among punks among migrants among all sorts of different groups to organize for self-defense against very violent far-right formations Um, and so that grew and came over to north america Uh, for example, in the form of anti-racist action, which was very active in the U.S. and Canada from the late 80s onward. And today, Antifa is kind of a loose name for groups that organize primarily to shine a light on what fascist and far-right groups are doing by exposing their activities, encouraging their bosses to fire them, encouraging, uh, you know, for example, uh, Recently, a lot of online platforms have banned the alt-right, whether it be PayPal um, or WordPress or various different um, sites for hosting websites. And so a lot of it is just basically reinforcing the public taboo against being a fascist. Uh, But also, it's about community self-defense, because as we've seen tragically, fascist and Nazi politics, when they're put into practice, are always violent, and it's only a matter of time before... Uh, these kinds of groups will strike.
1: Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk with you a little bit about some of the um, the misconceptions that people have of Antifa. I think that it's a term that gets kind of thrown around a lot in the media without a really good kind of conception of like the history that, that you're bringing up. For sure. People read your book. I mean, so much of that history is in there. Um, one of the, I think the biggest misconceptions I think for me is that, you know, Antifa or the anti-fascist movement is kind of by definition, this very violent, hooliganistic kind of movement. And like, yes, there are people who call themselves Antifa hooligans. That's a thing. But maybe can you unpack that a little bit and talk about like that, I guess, misconception of the movement being just a full-on kind of force for street violence? If you speak to people
0: who who are organizing against fascism, What they spend most of their time doing is reading through really insidious message boards where Nazis are discussing what they're up to. Uh, It's trying to figure out across various uh, social media platforms who these individuals are, who they're organizing with. Once this information is found out, it often involves contacting venues where fascist groups are trying to organize events, convincing the venue to cancel the event if the venue declines, organizing boycotts or pickets or campaigns of making phone calls to shut events. It involves public education and informing uh, the community about the kind of danger that groups pose. It's about working in coalitions with um, different kinds of Black Lives Matter and immigrant rights coalitions and Muslim organizations and Jewish organizations. When my book came out, a lot of journalists were interested in speaking to me about Antifa, especially after Charlottesville and comments made by President Trump, and I would encourage them to do research into all these other aspects of uh, anti-fascist organizing and also look at Antifa groups that don't uh, cover their faces, uh, don't engage in uh, a high level of security culture to protect their identities, Uh, and the media was often very disinterested. They were interested in violence and masks because they thought that's what would sell. Uh but that is a small sliver of what anti fascists do. But lamentably the aspect of self-defense that is part of anti fascism is essential to the movement as a whole because fascist violence is always coming and in one form or another it will arrive. The question is should anti fascists be ready to defend themselves? And I think that um recent events have only confirmed that that they they must in some form or another be ready to defend themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another, I think, key misconception that we're seeing these days and something that you've spoken about really, really eloquently is, you know, this notion of free speech, right? So we're kind of at a point now where the far right is kind of brandishing themselves as the guarantors or the protectors of free speech. And, you know, these mean Antifa protesters, they're really just out there to take away free speech for everyone by essentially trying to stop Nazis from having events or having a platform. Uh, can you unpack that idea a little bit for us?
0: Right, well, I guess the first thing to say is they don't actually mean it. Um, fascists and Nazis, given the opportunity, would eliminate most rights for most people. So it's it's entirely insincere, and it's one of many examples of how fascist and far-right groups try to co-opt liberatory ideas for their own purposes. Even, for example, the fact, uh, the the notion of white genocide, for example, taking the very real genocides that have been perpetrated uh, often by white people against indigenous populations, against the Jews, um, been trying to use that concept to make themselves a victim. Uh, And so in that same way, movements who historically have been the most notorious for eliminating the right to free speech now try to play the victim with it. That having been said, though, I think even if you recognize that they are full of it, uh, there's sort of a conversation that is occurring between anti fascists and anti racists on the one side and liberal pundits who believe that the way to stop the growth of far right ideas is simply to just allow uh, allow their ideas to be exposed to the, the public conversation. But that happened uh, in the 20s and 30s. Um, fascist and Nazi ideas were widely, they were debated, and in many times they were logically refuted. That didn't stop the growth of these movements. Um, so ultimately when we think of the right to free speech or any other right, it always exists with limits. So in the United States, for example, which is my, my point of reference, um, there's this idea that free speech is entirely free and unlimited and, and not trampled upon by anything except for the Antifa. But there are all sorts of limits when it comes to copyright infringement, to libel, to um, uh, not having advertisements for cigarettes. There are there are thousands of limits. The question is which limits to which rights promote the public good. In my opinion, if you are if you are really committed to the notion of free speech, not just in the abstract, but in practice, if you have a small fraction of the population who is trying to demonize and threaten people of color, queer and trans and non-binary people, Jews, Muslims, then it's actually that small fraction of society that actually feels emboldened to express themselves and people who are being targeted recede and and are threatened. So this conversation often occurs on campuses, for example, university campuses, and and I think is a good kind of uh, metaphor for the larger whole. If you want people from all sorts of different backgrounds and identities to actually in practice be able to express themselves, then having a small fraction of community threaten many of the rest doesn't actually produce a maximization of free expression. You know, these are important conversations to have, but I think the focus that so many people put on the question of speech shows how they don't really take seriously the potential of these uh, genocidal politics to grow, because if it gets to the point where large sectors of the population are, are literally facing death, the question of these abstract free speech rights really is not the main point. And I think that there, you know, we need to recognize there are lives at stake here. This isn't just an intellectual exercise.
1: Mm-hmm. And for sure, I mean, it's it's sad to say, but lives are being lost now. Um, I want to get to that in just a little bit, because I think even in the current context, there's so much to talk about. But I do want to bring it back to sports for a second, because of course, you know, this is a hockey podcast. And, and so we were talking about Gritty being this kind of reclaimed anti-fa mascot, even had the Philadelphia City Council pass a resolution kind of officially welcoming Gritty and acknowledging that Gritty was anti-fascist in kind of a playful way. Um, but like to your knowledge, you, of course, you know, you're, you're, you look at history all the time and has there been a precedent for this either in hockey or perhaps in other sports?
0: In North America, I'm not aware of a kind of direct comparison. I will say probably it must be kind of frustrating for like leftist Ranger fans who hate the Flyers, uh, <laughs> have pretty become the symbol of anti-fascism, but I digress. Um, it is much more comparable to aspects of political culture in um in uh football around the world Uh, football not in the american sense but in the global sense and of course yeah yeah, soccer right of course um (laughs) where in many parts of the world my my point of reference i know more about europe than elsewhere is that a lot of clubs have very specific political or sometimes even religious and ethnic connotations and that's not necessarily a, always a good or a bad thing. Sometimes it creates uh, really ugly scenes around simmering ethnic or religious tensions that, you know, you, you wish that in context like that book could, could really just have a game be a game. But In context where there are dangerous fascist movements, the identification of certain teams with anti-fascist politics can be a way to rally support and resistance. Most recently, I noticed that in England, there's a small professional club called Clapton CFC, I believe, that um, recently their new jerseys were designed based on the flag of the Second Republic during the Spanish Civil War. So they basically made anti-fascist jerseys and got a lot of support, especially in Spain. Um, yeah, I, saw I don't that. think that, yeah, I don't think that European teams have mascots. It's not the same kind of culture around sport in that way. But certainly the identification is there. One of the most famous teams in that regard would be St. Pauli, uh, the football team in Hamburg, Germany, which has become one of the most famous international anti-fascist, anti-racist teams. And and the team embraces that identity um, on the stadium they have you know, slogans against racism and so forth. Uh, but I, I, from my book, I interviewed um, an anti-fascist from Britain who was very active in the campaign in the 70s and 80s to get racism and fascism out of football in Britain. And I think it points to the fact that we can't view sports or any other kind of activity as existing independent of the societies we live in, but recognize that uh, politics exist all around us and efforts to push back against these oppressive ideas should be sort of engaged in various different ways
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i know uh one one other thing i'll mention too for people who are interested in radical political sports writing is um gabriel kuhn who is uh, an anarchist writer uh, currently based in sweden also wrote an amazing book called soccer versus the state where he really kind of takes a deep dive into these kind of Antifa uh, supporter clubs or supporter cultures uh, in Europe and in other parts of the world. And I, for one, would love to see hockey fans kind of borrow a page from that book and try to bring that a bit more into the hockey culture. Yeah,
0: one other other thing to add add Mm -hmm. to that is that if you look at really successful popular movements from decades and centuries ago, They often had their own version of what we now think as exclusively the domain of the mainstream. So they'd have their own newspapers, their own social clubs and their own sports teams. So the notion that sport has to be, you know, professional in, you know, played by millionaires in these big corporate stadiums is not how it has to be, not how it's always been. And I think that you can see that through these kinds of uh, left and anti-racist, anti-fascist sports tournaments and teams.
1: Mhm-, maybe to talk about something a little bit more kind of current, it's so sad to bring up because I mean you know we're just seeing these kinds of headlines almost every day, if not every week, happening in North America um uh, but you know we're talking about Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, but we'd be remiss to not talk about the the massacre that just happened at the uh synagogue in in pittsburgh um So maybe just to to kind of get your your reactions and and your thoughts on on this recent news.
0: Right. Um, It's heartbreaking. Um, And unfortunately, as you point out, not completely surprising. Uh, Not long before that, uh, a white man in Kentucky uh, murdered several black people because they were black. there's a recent bomb scares, uh, you know. Thinking back to, to Dylan Roof and the and the church shooting, there there's a lot of factors that go into this. I'm sure that this issue could be the topic of its own show. Just for the interest of of trying to sort of tie it back into some of the conversations we've been having, um, it does show that you know if you look at the kind of social media that this murderer engaged in. He was on Gab. He was a fan of various different kind of far right figures and personalities. He, he, in part killed these people in the synagogue because of their support for uh, refugees and migrants. I think at least it's a, a tragic example of how words are not always just words. Ideas are not always just ideas that what exists and what grows and festers in these dark corners of the internet can influence people to to kill the the in the united states is talking about as a case of hatred or extremism in the abstract or talking about wow this really shows how our public rhetoric has gotten out of control is is a really insidious way of depoliticizing what is very explicitly white supremacist and anti-semitic and fascist politics that needs to be named as such, and organized against as such, and recognized as a threat to many different parts of our broader community. Um, and and to simply just say this is a case of hatred or of a kind of uh, unstable individual, I think, is really counterproductive. But you know, just just ultimately, we, we live in a really uh, scary world today. Is the election in in Brazil, which will unfortunately likely put the uh, fascistic Bolsonaro into power. We can't talk about everything that's messed up going on in the world, but uh, it's just it's just heartbreaking.
1: Again, we've been speaking with Mark Bray, who is the author of "Antifa: The Anti-Fascist Handbook." I also saw recently, uh, you know, for our listeners in Quebec, it's been translated into French it was translated into spanish recently congrats on that uh, it's amazing thank that you. it's getting out there in different languages any other languages that that i might have missed is... greek greek right greek on. Yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah definitely get your hands on that book to find out a bit more and thank you so much mark for joining us on the program today
0: thanks for having me fight
1: in the field and in the street. Welcome back to Changing on the Fly. Hope you enjoy that interview with Mark Bray. Again, do check out his book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. It's available now through Melville House Publishing. If you want to support anti-fascist movements, the best thing to do is see if there's already one active in your city. You can contact them, offer to make a donation. But most importantly, we have to challenge racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic comments when we hear them around us. That's really the beginning of it all. So we're putting this podcast out on Halloween. And I've already seen some amazing gritty costumes out there on social media. So check it out. If you're dressing up as gritty or bonus and anti-fascist gritty this Halloween, take a pic of yourself, post it on social media, tag changing on the fly. On Twitter, our handle is on changing. Tell us why you love gritty and hate fascism. And we're gonna send you a surprise. I thought it would be really appropriate as we round out this episode also to list the people who tragically lost their lives at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh last weekend. You know, I myself am Jewish, I am anti-fascist, and this, this killing, it really stuck with me a lot, so I just wanted to say their names here. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, David Stein, Melvin Wax, and Irving Younger. And also, of course, we should mention the two folks who lost their lives in that racist shooting in Kentucky on October the 24th, Maurice Stallard and Vicki Jones, killed simply because they're black. Folks, we have to stop this wave of violence that is gripping North America. We have to stop fascism. And that's all the time we have on the show today. We do want to thank our Patreon supporters, Aiden, Ann, Dasha, Grill, Jeremy, Nick A, Nick T, and Sam. And again, if you want your name among that list and if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Don't forget, we're also a member of the Upford Network. Find your new favorite podcast at upfordnetwork.com. We'll be back very soon with more episodes from Changing on the Fly. Thanks for listening. Are you fascists about to lose? Are you fascists about to lose? you fascists about to lose? you fascists about to lose? Are you fascists about to, fascist to, fascist to, to, fascist to lose?
0: People are Hi, I'm Candace Pye, and I'm the host of Gal Chat, a weekly podcast where we give you our feminist takes on everything from sex and dating to politics and pop culture. It's a show that updates you on controversial headlines, dives into the latest movies and TV, and discusses things like Tinder troubles and Me Too struggles. I put out a new show every Tuesday with special guests, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, review, and follow us on social media at Gal Pod. Hi, I'm Tefera Jemian, one of the hosts of Yeah! a podcast on the Upford Network. We're talking about young adult literature, reviewing new releases, revisiting old classics, and exploring what the YA genre can teach us at any age. Join me and my co-host, Hannah Bailey, as we talk about friendships, dating, family relationships, sexuality, experiences of queerness, body politics, and more through the lens of our favorite YA novels as well as books we're just discovering. The Yeah! Podcast, available through the Upford Network and on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is our book club, and you're invited. As far as I could tell, the real start of the left and anti-fascists claiming Gritty as one of their own was when Donald Trump came to Philadelphia and there was a demonstration against him, and some of the local anti-fascists made a banner with an image of Gritty holding an anti-fascist flag, and it said something to the effect of, Gritty say GTFO... Of Philadelphia Trump and, and and if you look at, at gritty he's this outlandish over-the-top uh, you know bizarre looking creature so in that way he can he can sort of be taken and turned in in a variety of directions obviously the left and anti fascists kind of jumped on it initially in part because Philadelphia has a pretty vibrant uh, anti-fascist movement he was claimed and then subsequently became a uh, uh, a figure that was central to a lot of left memes where everyone invested gritty with their most ultra left, anti racist, uh, anti patriarchal, anti fascist sentiments.